All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Alex Longquist. Alex is a nutritional therapy practitioner based in Los Angeles, California. Alex focuses on designing a holistic plan to support each client's individual health needs using diet, lifestyle, and supplementation. Alex specializes in low-carb diets such as the carnivore diet. He is knowledgeable in helping clients implement lifestyle practices to balance immune and nervous system dysfunction. Alex overcame his own serious health issues, including chronic fatigue syndrome, chemical sensitivity, and severe anxiety, and he's devoted to helping others heal and reverse their own illnesses. Alex uses several different dietary strategies, including carnivore, ketogenic fasting protocols, GAPS, lectin-free, low oxalate, and low histamine. He's passionate about helping uh, get people back in touch with their body's innate wisdom and unlocking their energy and joy. So Alex, super uh, happy to have you on the show today, man. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. So I touched on briefly in your bio, kind of it sounds like you you kind of went through your own kind of personal health challenges, which it led you sort of into this line of work. Can you tell me just a little about, you know, kind of finding all this stuff and, and what was going on for you? Yeah. So uh, like you said, I pretty much got into this field of nutrition uh, by accident. Uh, I, I started dealing with some some pretty severe health issues around mid, late and high school, and they continued to get worse when I was in college. They got so bad that I actually had to drop out of college during my senior year. But after dropping out, uh, a, a silver lining to this is I was introduced to an amazing nutritionist whose name is Mary Reddick, who has saved my life and totally turned my life around through implementing nutritional therapy and some pretty amazing lifestyle practices as well. And she inspired me so much that I just had to start learning more and it eventually um, became my career as, as it is now. So uh, really, like you said in um, the introduction, the, the illnesses I was dealing with were very um, unusual and not very common, at least from a Western medicine perspective. Um, all of the doctors that I was going to see, they didn't really have an answer for me. And, and that was really the first place that I went for help was my, was my allopathic uh, physician. But really they took, you know, they took a look at my blood work and they said that everything was fine. Uh, the endocrinologist looked at my hormone panel and said that, that everything was in the normal range, but I just was not feeling normal. I felt horrible and I knew something was wrong. And so um, my parents and I uh, were exhausting all of our, uh, our options all of our resources and eventually it led us to nutrition and it turns out that that was really the answer all along and i have a feeling that many people many other people especially in the united states but throughout the world are in similar situations as i was in which they feel totally helpless with their illnesses and really all they need is just to adjust their diet and change some of the, the stressors and limit their stress in their life and their body will just take care of the rest. 
yeah, it's crazy how it's, you know, still so many people just, I mean, obviously like in our kind of line of work where it's people who are interested in health and wellness, you know, are paying attention to this stuff, but just like kind of the average American, or as you're talking about, just like the average person across the world, like just, there's so many people that still just don't really even associate the two, like in terms of diet and their health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's unfortunate. And like you, like you said, I mean, um, many people will just carry on with their daily lives, you know, a high stress job that they don't like eating a standard American diet, and they really won't think about changing what they're doing and how they're affecting their health until they have no other choice. And that was what I basically had to do. Otherwise, I would would be, you know, I would have gone through college just like any other person, you know going to bars every weekend, staying up late, but my body just couldn't handle it. And so uh, part of my goal and my motivation in my work now is to get people to realize that they don't need to wait until the last second when they have no other choice that they can change their life around. And it's worth investing in their health right now when they're young, when their body can handle all of those stressors, because it's that preventative aspect of their life with their lifestyle and diet that is going to set the rest of their life up comfortably for, for good health. What were some of the biggest changes to your diet or nutrition that, that you personally made that, that made the biggest impact as you were kind of working to recover from your own health challenges? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So what I would say is the number one factor for for people who are sick today is a compromised gut microbiome. And if you are not familiar, or if any of your viewers are not familiar, the gut microbiome is a large group of bacteria, viruses, worms, protozoa that make up 90% of your body. 90% of you is actually your microbiome and 10% of you is what you would call you typically. Um, And so your microbiome is, it it can be either your best friend, your biggest ally, or your biggest enemy, a villain to you. And that's based on the the quality and the variety and the balance of this microbiome um, and whether they're able to keep it, whether the bacteria in it are able to keep each other in balance, like checks and balances almost. And so many people with a Western diet and lifestyle today their gut microbiome is totally out of balance. And so that's why many people can eat food like gluten, they can eat a a bagel or a piece of bread and have no trouble at all. It's because their microbiome is balanced and it turns that food into energy. Whereas someone like me, when I was sick, they eat gluten, they eat bread, and it creates a whole bunch of inflammation and toxins. And so the two-pronged approach that I take with my clients is to starve out the bad bacteria that are overgrowth in the gut microbiome or in order to shift the the microbiome back to balance so that you can digest more foods properly and absorb the nutrition. And then lowering the stress by changing the lifestyle practices. And that is, you know, meditating, gratitude journaling, listening to classical music, all those sorts of sorts of things. And the diet is obviously, I would say more important, but 
in order to really get the progress that you need and, and reverse those illnesses, the lifestyle practices are just as important. And in terms of with, you know, making changes to your, your diet or lifestyle, like, are you a fan of kind of just uh, keeping track of what is, you know, working and what's not just through kind of observation? Or do you like recommend to your clients that they get any specific blood work or kind of uh, microbiome tests done? Absolutely. Yeah. So the blood tests are just another sort of uh, angle to view the person's health. They're very important, but like I said before, it's not always all of the picture. My blood work was perfect, or at least it was in good, it was in the normal ranges for most of the, the things for me, but obviously something was still wrong. Um, so it's only, only a tiny piece of the picture. Um, a lot of the questions I end up asking my clients are based around whether they have any cravings, because that can tell us a lot about whether portions of the microbiome of the overgrowth of opportunistic bacteria in the microbiome are dying off and you're getting closer to balance. Uh, you can also see whether or not they're getting old interests back. Like if they are becoming more artistic, they're picking up old hobbies, or if they are getting more inclination for sex or, you know, they're wanting to have sex because the body will not prioritize wanting to reproduce and have sex because it's really just trying to preserve its energy to stay alive and, and get through a day, if that makes sense. So it's kind of managing and, and evaluating what, what energy the body is prioritizing and, and having, uh, being able to distribute. And then also, um, the state of the microbiome as well. So I, yeah, I believe you mentioned uh, like gluten and maybe dairy as far as like kind of common triggers for people that um, kind of uh, lead to a, a more unhealthy sort of gut flora. But what are some of the other things that, that people might not be aware of, you know, in terms of their diet that's kind of shifting their, their gut to a place that maybe is not optimal? Yeah, that's a really good question. So what I would say is fairly unknown in the general population, but is gaining a lot more knowledge uh, as of late are anti-nutrients. Uh, and the two big ones that I wanna to touch on are lectins and oxalates. Lectins are found in uh, plant foods and they are undigestible proteins that basically when ingested wreak havoc in the body. They can actually uh, poke holes in your gut lining, which can lead to leaky gut. They can disrupt disrupt your endocrine system by binding to receptors and blocking uh, your hormones. They can actually travel uh, throughout your nervous system. There was a study done in Denmark uh, in the past where they cut the vagus nerve, which is the nerve attached to your brain that uh, turns on your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system in your gut. And they found that when they cut the vagus nerve that the amount of lectins found in the brain decreased significantly when ingested. So these lectins just wreak havoc in the body and they can pretty much go wherever they want, causing inflammation. Then there are oxalates and oxalates are different from lectins uh, in that they can basically add up and build up in certain pockets and certain tissues in the body. And they are actually the number one cause of kidney stones. So when we'll say, let's say somebody is eating, well, the highest, the highest 
oxalate level in foods are in turmeric and spinach. Those are the two highest foods. And, you know, a common health uh, trend is to have lots of green smoothies. There was actually a woman that had three green smoothies, a full packed full of spinach and actually had to go to the hospital and almost died from kidney failure from the amount of oxalates that she had in such a short period of time. And that's, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. And you can only detox them when you have fully eliminated them from your diet. It's kind of like your body is wanting to get rid of them as, as much as possible. But if you have a high amount in the diet, they can't. And then all of a sudden you don't have any coming in your diet and your body's like, oh, great. Now we can get rid of them. We can pour them out of here and the kidneys go crazy. It's, it's, it's finally safe to put them in the bloodstream and get rid of them. And when this happens, oxalates are basically shaped like tiny little shards of glass. And so it can be extremely painful to rid yourself of these oxalates if you have a high buildup of them. And so what we're finding is that so many of these foods that we've been told for, for what seems like forever uh, that are so healthy, like spinach, and then these foods that have lectins in them, um, like gluten, gluten is a lectin, and that's probably the most well-known lectin, um, is that these, these foods are not actually as healthy as we've made them out to be. And that was something I, I familiar, got familiar with, with lectins and oxalates from uh, Dr. Stephen Gundry uh, reading the, I believe it was the plant paradox. Absolutely. And, great book. Yeah. And it was a great book. And I mean, it, it opened my eyes to so much as far as like, like that you wouldn't normally think, like you mentioned spinach and turmeric, like things that you would ask most people like who are involved in, you know, their health and, and wellness. And most people would consider those to be like superfoods, you know, something that's going to be really beneficial for your body. The other one uh, I remember Dr. Gundry was talking about was like lentils having, uh, you know, kind of all the uh, uh, lectins. And it's like, that's another just kind of group of foods that a lot of people kind of normally classify as, as something that would be associated with, with good health. So it's, it's crazy that it's just like so much of this stuff. It's, it's, it goes a lot deeper than just like avoiding eating Cheetos and ice cream. Like, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have other foods like tomatoes that we would consider to be an extremely important vital part of the history of say Italian food cuisine, but they've actually only been eating tomatoes in like the last 200 years or something. And they have high amounts of lectins in them. And, you know, you mentioned lentils as well. All of these foods that have lectins in them, they have been eaten for some time, but until the last century or so, they were prepared much differently than they are today. All of our innate wisdom around these foods has pretty much gone out the window in that we used to prepare them in a way to limit the amount of lectins that they would have. So that's sprouting, soaking, fermenting, all of these foods. And we've pretty much turned that away in, in exchange for convenience and accessibility and speed because we are living a lifestyle today in the Western world where it's like, go, 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 go. We just need to you know eat, eat in the car when we're on our way to work. And it's all about just getting the food in so that we, we can um, get through our day instead of just focusing on 
getting the food that is going to be most nutritious for us, most healing for us. And we are uh, seeing the damage done today with that change. How do you approach like as, as a, a nutritional health, uh, a ther nutritional therapy practitioner, how do you go about kind of teasing out the, the, the different kind of diets and nutrition camps, you know, cause it seems like it can be a very sort of divisive subject. I mean, very divisive where some people are just like, you know, on the carnivore diet and like want to eat tons of meat and other people are like vegans and like think that if you eat meat, you know, that's, that's horrible. So like, how do you go about just kind of assessing the different diet strategies and, and how did you kind of settle on, on the one that you now kind of like, uh, use with your clients? That's a good question. Yeah. There, there is a lot of, of conflicting information out there. Isn't there? Uh, I would say the most important factor in deciding whether or not a diet is going to be good for you or whether the, the wisdom behind a diet is valid is based on our innate wisdom and our ancestral wisdom behind it. Because there is a reason, there's, there's always a reason why we have been doing something. That's, that's sort of like the philosophy I live behind with my, with my studies and, and when I'm learning things. And what you see throughout all of human history is that we have always been meat eaters, always. There's never really been a society that hasn't worshipped and prioritized having animal products in their diet with the exception of India but the reason why they don't necessarily eat meat is because they were getting butter and milk and other animal products from their cows and that's why they worship these cows so much is because they are providing a constant stream of these animal products filled with saturated fat and cholesterol and vitamins that are going to heal and nurture them. And so uh, you can see through um, the, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the dentist Weston A. Price. Have you heard of him? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so he, he, in the, the early 1900s, he went around to many different tribes around the, uh, the entire world and looked at diets of these tribes and then tribes that were similar to them and ha who had been influenced by Western diet and lifestyle and compared their, their jaws and their teeth. And first of all, what they found, what he found is that all of these tribes had animal products in their diet as like the pretty much the main piece of their diet. And they all had perfect teeth, beautiful teeth, no cavities whatsoever. And then a more Western diet for these other similar tribes. They had missing teeth, their jaws and, and facial structure were, were more slender and that caused not enough space in their, in their mouths for the teeth to grow in. And so I'm, I'm getting a little bit off on a tangent, but basically what, what I'm, the point I'm getting at is that um, it's, it's about balancing new science where we can research um, which foods are the best, you know, nutritionally with, with vitamins and minerals and do all the amazing scientific testing that we do while also balancing our ancestral wisdom and all the evidence that we've got from all of our history.
Awesome. Mm -hmm. And as far as like, do you think like how much of a variation in between, you know, just each person's gut microbiome, do you kind of take into account? Like if someone, if say you follow the carnivore diet, are we going to end up having the same microbiome as if I follow that same diet? That's a good question. Yeah. So what, what I will say about that is that you, you, the good bacteria in your gut will pretty much eat anything. And then the overgrowth of the opportunistic bacteria will only eat sugar and starch. And so as long as you are, you know, you can be, you can be eating meat an entirely carnivore diet and you are going to have just as healthy of a gut microbiome as somebody who's eating say a gaps diet which has maybe 50 percent animal products and then lots of healthy vegetables avocado um, uh, a2 dairy as well and um, really the important part is just avoiding the starch and sugar that's going to feed the overgrowth and you know if that there, there are a lot of inf influences in today's lifestyle, you know, in today's Western world that are going to kill off certain bacteria. Like there is a form of E. coli that um, is very important in eating off excess lactic acid in the body. And many people have lost all of that E. coli strain from antibiotics. And so what I will say with my clients is if they are, if, you know, if there's an imbalance that they might have, we, after we heal the gut and starve out the overgrowth of bacteria, we will add in certain probiotics to help build and balance that, that bacteria in their gut. And tell me about, so you mentioned uh, your clients, like tell me what are, what are kind of the common things that people come in to, to see you for? Is it like, they just kind of, uh, went on a similar path as you, where they tried different doctors and different approaches and, and just haven't found something to work. And, and then kind of, uh, tell me about kind of like, what are some common like symptoms that you deal with when, when it comes to these gut imbalances? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say most commonly is some form of irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease. And that is it. It's most vital to change the carbohydrates, if any carbohydrates that those clients are eating to be able to see the real healing because it's usually due to an inability to break down the complex carbohydrates. Like I said, the sugars and the starches that are caused by an overgrowth of the bacteria, but also histamine intolerance is becoming much more common. You know, even 20 or 30 years ago, seeing the the amount of people it's, it's at least more than doubled or even tripled the amount of people that come in with, with histamine intolerance. Um, I would say chemical sensitivity, which is something that I had is also becoming very, very common, uh, unusually common, actually um, it, to varying degrees, but uh, people are becoming more and more sensitive to scents, um, colognes, perfumes, certain soaps. And that is definitely due to the, the compromised gut microbiome, but also we are living in a more and more toxic world and exposure to these toxins in 
our, our nervous system, these toxins settle in our fatty tissues, like in our nervous system. And that's, uh, that's a huge factor in that. So those are, those are a few things. Um, uh, also anxiety and depression. I mean, I'm sure you've spoken about the, the gut brain uh, connection on your show and how 95% of your serotonin is made in your gut and what you, what all, all that, well, not all, but much of what needs to be corrected uh, with these, these anxiety and depression clients is really just balancing the gut microbiome so that it can make your feel good hormones again. And um, everything will really fall back in, into place after that. Yeah. There's some really, really interesting studies that I've seen lately uh, regarding like giving people a certain probiotic strain and evaluating like anxiety and depression and just like people would not normally make that connection, but there were like just significant changes like similar to or even better than what you would see with you know clinical antidepressants just from a specific strain of bacteria fascinating yes absolutely uh i mean it's so good to see that 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 more research is being done on bacteria and how it influences our health because i mean it's it's undeniable at this point did you notice a yeah. lot of cognitive changes like as you started kind of fixing, fixing your gut and solving these kind of chronic health issues. Did you, did you notice kind of brain fog lifting or, or thinking more clearly? Yes, absolutely. My energy was like times a thousand when I fixed my diet and I started detoxing better. And, uh, I should mention this as well, uh, I'll, with my anxiety and my chemical sensitivity that I was dealing with, much of that has to do with your limbic system, which is the part of your nervous system that is uh, partnering your emotions to your outside world and all of the inputs you get from your environment. And so along with me getting my energy back and me being able to relax and being more of a parasympathetic state, I also had to really work on my limbic, limbic system exercises, which, you know, are reframe, reframing my thoughts, meditating, um, gratitude journaling, like I mentioned before, because you can actually rewire your brain and essentially forget that you have this illness. Um, if, for example, you have for somebody who is, uh, anxious in social situations and they get a phone call, they get invited to a party and they are, you know, super freaked out, even though they're not at the party, they're thinking about a time when they were at a party in the last week or so, even though they're safe in their room, you know, everything's fine. They're, they're not in any danger at all. Their body is responding because their limbic system is leaning towards a fight or flight response and they get a rush of cortisol and adrenaline and their body is going to go into shock basically and they're they need to run and in my situation if i was ever in a place where i was worried about being exposed to somebody who was wearing cologne because they would give me a headache um if I thought about me getting a reaction to a chemical, like a smell or something like that, it would happen to me 100% of the time. 
And so in order to heal that, it's almost like you have to, like I said, forget that you have the illness, retrain yourself and tell yourself that you are not going to react. You're going to be fine. You are safe. You're secure. You have everything you need. And part of that training with your nervous system is going to totally work together with all the dietary changes that you make in order to get yourself totally in that parasympathetic state and, and make you feeling safe. Sort of reminds me a little bit of like, you know, I don't know if you've heard of like the phantom limb syndrome where, you know, people have like lost an arm or whatever, and, but they still, they still have the muscle memory of having the arm. So it's like their brains are still, you know, doing certain things as if they did have an arm, even though they don't anymore. It's like, it kind of reminds me of that in the sense that like our bodies kind of remember, you know, like the past, like, obviously I think as sort of a survival mechanism, right. Where it's like, if we, if we saw, you know, a saber tooth tiger at a specific location, like our bodies and brains can like remember that. So we don't go back to that same location and get eaten. So it kind of makes sense just like as a survival adaptation, um, to hold on to, to this sort of stuff. So it makes sense that you'd have to work to sort of calm the, the limbic system to rewire yourself. Yes. And it's funny that you mentioned that, uh, remind me if maybe, maybe you're familiar with this as well. I think there was a study done where they compared athletes who were lifting weights. So they would have, uh, people lifting weights, they do bicep curls, and then they would have people just thinking about doing the bicep curls compared to people who wouldn't. And there was an extreme vast difference in the people who were just thinking about doing the curls and the amount of muscle that they actually gained just by thinking about it. Are, are you familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing. The power that our brain has in not only our healing, but just, you know, our, our Zen and, and you know, state of mind and just peacefulness. Do you think that, you know, say if someone's eating a not too great diet, but if they're not aware of sort of nutrition and what is good for you, bad for you. I mean, if you think that you're eating healthily, then can your body sort of respond as if the food that you're eating actually is healthy? Like, do you sort of see what I'm saying? Like, yes, <laughs> that is, that is an interesting question. Uh, I would say to a, only to a certain extent, because the food that you're eating is going to influence how you're able to think and your cognitive function to a certain degree. Uh, I, I can't really make an, an educated uh, uh, hypothesis on that, but I would say uh, it, it's possible. It really depends on, on the person though. But it seems like also like the flip side is like, can be the case like, I was talking to, to a woman, um, about kind of like mindful eating. And she was talking about like a lot of people that came to see her were eating like super, super, you know, what they thought were like super, super healthy diets and like being very, oh, like often like overly attentive to what they were eating. And that was actually putting them sort of in a state of, of anxiety, um, and kind of their relationship with their food, because it was like, they, they had so much fear. Oh, if I eat one, you know, one thing that's bad for me, they kind of catastrophized it. So it's like, 
I don't know. It seems like there, there has to be some kind of like even, even balance where you don't like you try to eat as healthy as you can, but maybe not taking it to the extreme where you beat yourself up if you eat, you know, one piece of spinach or a kidney bean or something. Yes. And I will say when I, I was the type of person when I was healing that I, I did not want to slip up, not even one little bit. And it was, it became kind of an obsession for me to, cause I, well, I was, I was just so focused on getting well again, but I think what you might be talking about is a bit more, it could be influenced a bit by social pressures and just expectations for, you know, how, how to look and then just body types and, and that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of different pressures that we see that are influencing, you know, we, we see, uh, eating disorders and then, um, which are actually, many of them can be related to micronutrient deficiencies, um, as well. But, um, I think it's, it's, it's a complicated issue that, that also just comes back to the way that we are living in a Westernized society is kind of, um, becoming a stressor on expectations and negativity and, you know, how we're, how we're seen by others and, and all of that stuff. Cause we really shouldn't have to worry about any of any of those things in general. We should just be able to eat the food that we've been eating for generations and everything will, will just be normal you know, but that's not the case now. In terms of like, so what's your take on, on supplementation? Like, cause there's definitely like the camp that's kind of like, you know, you can get all of your nutrients from your diet and supplements, you know, are kind of useless. And then there's the people who are popping like a hundred pills, you know, hundred supplements a day. So where do you kind of fall in, on that stance? Yeah, for sure. So there's, absolutely a place for supplementation in nutritional therapy. Um, but some supplements are better than others. That's what I'll say. Uh, let's say you, you have somebody with a neurological disease and they are extremely deficient in B vitamins. Well, would you be better off taking a B, B complex multivitamin or just eating a spoonful of beef liver every day? you would absolutely be, be better off taking the beef liver because even just a tiny little bit of that beef liver, just a square of it is going to have more absorbable B vitamins, more bioavailable B vitamins than the entire bottle of B complex. But that's not to say that vitamins can't have their place. I mean, there are, I'll give one example. So, um, B1 thiamine deficiency is becoming much, much more common nowadays due to increased consumption of rice and wheat products that can actually cause deficiencies in thiamine. And there aren't that many foods that can give you or give people who are deficient in B1 enough of this B1 vitamin to offset the deficiency. So supplementing B1 max, like hyper supplementing, uh, these, these people that are deficient is really the only answer to getting them not to be deficient unless you eat, you know, three or four pounds of pork every day, or you're eating as much liver as you're, as, as you can handle. So, um, 
it really depends on the situation, but I will say that supplementation is absolutely uh, has its place. Um, ideally, ideally, you'd want to be able to get all the vitamins you need from food, but it's just not really possible nowadays because our soils have been depleted of many micronutrients like magnesium is, is um, pretty much deficient in everybody due to our depleted soils, also zinc and many others as well. So Alex, I wanted to ask you about like your specific, uh, the specific services that you offer. I saw some really interesting ones. Like you, uh, you offer like, uh, like a pantry and fridge audit, uh, grocery store to uh, tour, uh, kitchen and cooking lesson. I thought those were like super cool, like kind of unique offerings that, that maybe not a lot of other nutritional practitioners are doing. So kind of like what, what kind of led you to, to those sort of services? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm finding in the average person is that they, there really is just a, a lack of knowledge and understanding about what foods are healthy and what foods are not really just, and, and you have to start with the, ba the absolute basics and to, to simplify it, it's really just about if you're going in a grocery store, shopping on the outside of the grocery store, not going in any of the aisles and grabbing anything that has a nutrition facts label on it. If I had to sum it, sum it up. Um, but that goes even further with helping people know what fats are best to cook with, what um, cookware you want to use, which cookware is the least toxic and uh, that sort of thing like that. So it's really about re-educating people on how to cook, what to cook, what's best. And from there, they can sort of have that foundation to continue learning on their own. And, and I find that that's typically all that people need, especially if they're not dealing with some really debilitating illnesses and they just want to lose weight or they just want to increase their energy. That can be all they really need to get going and improve their health. It's super cool to just kind of learn about how, if you fix kind of the, the basics, if you kind of fix the foundations of your health, you know, being kind of the nutrition that a lot of this stuff, a lot of these symptoms and, and illnesses that at least in the Western world, we normally turn to pharmaceutical drugs to treat that we might not even have to for a lot of these things if we paid more attention to the, the kind of stuff that you've been talking about today. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is that many of these medications that are prescribed for people to help with their illnesses, they actually can cause deficiencies and further cause the illnesses that they're meant to, to help. For instance, with uh, small fiber neuropathy, which is pain and inflammation in your small fiber nerves, um, they are given a medication called gabapentin, and it can lead to deficiency of vitamin B6, and deficiencies in B vitamins are what most commonly will lead to neurological diseases like neuropathy. So, um, you know, these medications can be very helpful for some people people, but they are not a long-term solution. And it's like you said, getting people back to balance, back to creating all the hormones that they need, back to being in a relaxed state and 
lowering their inflammation so that they are in homeostasis. It kind of makes sense though, just for like, I mean, sort of a, a business model, like for the pharmaceuticals and doctors to, to have, I mean, not to be too cynical here, but you know, if you have something like what you're talking about, uh, a drug that's designed to, to treat a specific condition, and it's really just sort of exacerbating that condition, but then if it's not working well, what is the patient going to say to the doctor? Oh, you know, this isn't really working well enough. And the doctor would probably like up the dosage, which could then even like further the problem and the deficiency. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what, what you said there about it not being a long-term solution, I think, I think is, is kind of key. Yeah. And another example to that would be uh, per, um, prescribing insulin to type two diabetics and insulin is the hormone that promotes fat storage. And the answer to reversing type two diabetes is to lower the amount of insulin and get insulin sens sensitivity back up so that we can decrease the amount of blood sugar in the body, in the body so they can get their pancreas working again. But the answer to that is from a, uh, you know, pharmaceutical perspective is just to give more insulin because, oh, we just need to treat the symptom, get the blood sugar down, but that creates more fat storage. And it's just a vicious cycle that just, there's no end in sight. It's about treating a symptom so that they can, you know, live another day and they can buy more of the, the drug and, Instead, what we really should be asking is, okay, what is the root cause of the disease? How can we support them with nutrition and lifestyle practices in order to get them back to balance? Um, and also another point uh, before I forget is that there is very little pro profit potential in food, especially properly raised healthy foods that we've been eating forever, like pasture raised beef, butter, eggs, the profit margins on them are this slim, whereas on a pharmaceutical, they can make the prices however high they want because it's based on the demand and how willing people are to paying for those drugs that they are led to believe are the only answer for them to continue living their lives with their illness. Or even uh, foods that are marketed by big corporations and big food to uh, that have very little nutritional value, but they trick people with fancy marketing and <laughs> flashy brands, and they can just hike the prices up very high and uh, get their kids interested and tell, you know, hey, mommy, I want, I want this cereal. And, you know, it's like, otherwise there's, um, so there's not, there's not as much uh, money potential in, you know, just buying a steak. Yeah. And like, when I started like reading about just the importance of, of eating fats and, and good fats in your diet, you know, just kind of like learning about, I think it was in the, the 1970s in which uh, I think it was the American Heart Association basically started like just kind of forming these partnerships with all the like sugary cereal companies, whatever, like promoting them as heart healthy. So it, it basically turned into not a science thing anymore of, of what's good for your heart, but these, if we recommend these sort of things, these sugary foods, you know, this will bring us the greatest, greatest profit. And, you know, they're a reputable big organization that 
people, a lot of people aren't going to like question. And, you know, so that, I mean, that was just from what I was reading. I mean, that sort of shifted everyone into this kind of high carb, low, good fat diet um, that nowadays we're kind of seeing that maybe we should kind of flip that on its head. You are, you are so right. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, back in the fifties, th this all started with Ansel Keys, who was a, uh, I, I believe he was at the university of Minnesota and he hypothesized that saturated fat was the leading cause saturated fat and cholesterol were leading to increased levels of heart disease. And so he started taking data on different countries around the world and the amount of saturated fat that they were eating in their diet. But the study that he that he published was manipulated and changed in order to fit his hypothesis. So he left out the countries that were not helping with his trends showing that saturated fat was leading to heart disease. It's basically like, I mean, anyone can kind of do this with a study. It's like saying, oh, if I if I change the data enough that I can I can say that if you own a toaster, then you will have acne. It's, it's just ridiculous. So um, a food that we've been eating for the entirety of our, of our history as humans is all of a sudden bad for us and leading to heart disease. What really is more likely is that the foods that we've been adding since the industrial revolution are what are contributing to heart disease, like vegetable oils, which are extremely high in omega-6 fatty acids, which are inflammatory. And, you know, you can kind of see even today with the American Heart Association, they are slowly ever so slightly backtracking because they there's pressure on them to change their policies. And, you know, they are still taking in money from corporations, giving them the sealed sign of approval for the like, heart healthy Cheerios. I mean, it's just, it's just nonsense. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so um, really what we should be cutting out of our diet are the vegetable oils, these processed oils that are inflammatory and unstable when you cook them. They're all, they're extremely high in omega-6 fatty acids and polyunsaturated fats, which are unstable under high heat. And they, these are the fats that the government and industries are telling us are the right foods for us. And it's, it's, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> That's what I'll say. <laughs> well said, well said. Well, Alex, we're, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but for people who are interested in kind of uh, learning more about what we, what we've been talking about, learning more about your specific uh, company and services, where would you direct them to? Yes, absolutely. So my name is Alex Lonquist, and you can find me on my website, unlockyourwellness.com. I will uh, be able to set up a short 15-minute free consultation. We can make sure that we're a good fit, and then we can set up an appointment where we can discuss your current health goals, any anything you want to work on, um, and so forth using nutritional and lifestyle changes. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'll say about that. Um, that's where you can find me. Awesome. 
And for those of you guys who enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, where Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. Also, go ahead and subscribe on whatever audio platform that you use to listen to the podcast on, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Go ahead and subscribe on there as well. Alex, I wanted to really thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, really ex- uh, enjoyed our discussion. Thanks so much, Toby. It's been great. Love it.